Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Well, I don't know if uh, you've been aware of it the last few weeks, but uh, God is doing something special in our midst. Amen? And uh, this last week, we had uh, uh, a special event. Every six weeks, we pause all of the other ministries so that we can uh, do a great work of prayer. And we had a prayer time this last week, and I know quite a few of you were here for that, uh, but we had about, I don't know, 350 people in this room, and our time in worship and prayer and time of family was so significant. Um, I, I want you right now to, if you were not able to be there, I want you to pull your calendar, pull your phones out right now, and I just want you to look six weeks from now, okay, that's going to be in December, you're going to be doing some shopping that's all right, you'll still have a couple weeks before Christmas, but put on your calendar in six weeks on that Tuesday. Uh, it's the second week, it'll be the second week of December. Um, put that down to show up here for our prayer time. Uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but uh, the time that we had in worship and prayer was significant. And I would say for many of us that have been here at the church, we've been praying for moments like that where we could just sense the spirit of God using the prayers of his people uh, to impact us and encourage us to make a difference. So don't miss it. If you were here, you were blessed. Amen. Amen. I want you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter two. We're in our series called Incomparable. Hebrews chapter 2. Oh, I need to say something else. Uh, uh, somebody asked me if um, I just didn't know how to dress. Is that why I have striped socks? I just wanted you to be aware. Uh, these are because I enjoy Where's Waldo, and it is true. I have no idea what color to wear, so just enjoy them while you see them, okay? Just want to get that one out there. Uh, if you're bothered by it, don't tell Christina. You just come straight to me. It'll be okay. <laughs> Incomparable. This week, not just a son or a brother, but God's son, our brother. Uh, I want you to know a short while ago, 30 years ago, something happened uh, that had a deep impact on the um, DC Comics world. Superman died 30 years ago. Famous issue, Superman. Now, Superman had, uh, had actually died a little while before this. A man by the name of, um, his name was George Reeves. Not Christopher Reeves, George Reeves. 1953, he played Superman, the very first Superman on TV. And he was actually at a department store posing and a little kid came up uh, who had taken a 45 pistol out of his dad's uh, house uh, because he wanted to prove that uh, Superman was real. He was having an argument with his friends, and he pointed that pistol directly at Superman and had cocked back the hammer. And, and George Reeves was standing up there in front of all of these people that had come to see him pose as Superman at a department store. It was the thing they used to do. 
And as he is standing there, he recognizes this kid wants to pull the trigger to prove that he really is Superman, that he really is bulletproof. And he says, son, it's true. I'm Superman. If you shoot that, that bullet's going to bounce right off me. But look at all these people around here. You're going to hurt somebody when it hits them. And he uncocked the gun. Yeah, I know. Isn't that amazing? Real Superman in the cartoons died 1992. They said it was a uh, gimmick, but for a short while, they sold so many copies, set records. At one point, a comic uh, book store that had uh, normally only purchased 50 copies of any comics, they would wait for all of the nerds to come out of their basement when the pizza ran out and come buy their comic books. 2,200 copies they had. People lined up for a month around the end of the store. All they were doing was handing them the comic book and ringing it up at the cash register back and forth for months. It set sales. Millions and millions of copies sold. Superman had died. The battle that Superman was actually having was with somebody named Doomsday. Doomsday uh, was a supervillain. He had been, according to the comic books, imprisoned in an abyss far below the surface of the earth for a long time. But then he got loose and he was threatening to annihilate the earth. Doomsday uh, was described by one of the other superheroes that gets crushed by him uh, as hate, death, and bloodlust personified. A scared mom in the comic book at one time is grabbing onto her child and is shouting out that when she sees Doomsday, uh, she's describing him to her son and calls him the devil incarnate, ushering in the end of the world. Who can save the world from doom? Superman did. So Superman comes in and in the process of fighting Doomsday and getting rid of the doom, Superman dies. He died to save the world. Now, you know if you've been reading comic books that Superman came back to save DC Comics so they could make more money. <laughs> we have in the book of Hebrews, not Superman, not somebody who is made up, not a fake doom that's just some artist's rendition, but we have a real Jesus, the God of the universe, no flaws who actually enters into time and space to take care of something that we could not conquer. Real hell, real concerns. But the difference between the doomsday that's in the comic books and the real doom that you and I are facing is that in addition to fighting a real evil, Satan, the doom that Christ also comes to conquer is inside every single one of us. He reaches in in a way that none of us can understand. And the book of Hebrews highlights how that happens. I just want to remind you as we turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through the end of the chapter there in verse 18. But I want to remind you that we've been on a little bit of a journey. The author of Hebrews has described different scenarios for us. He has showed us different Old Testament passages that highlight who Jesus Christ is. He says that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the Savior and that we should follow him. And then at the beginning of chapter 2 it says, these things are true. Hang on to them and do not drift. And that's where we find ourselves. The very next statement coming out of that warning, don't drift. 
He starts in verse 5 with our text for this morning. Let's stand and read this section together. Listening ears, the author of Hebrews gets a little complicated as he's walking through this, and we'll try to unpack it this morning. Verse 5, God's word, he says this, For he has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about, but someone somewhere has testified. What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you cared for him? You made him a little lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That should be an interesting verse for you. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust him. And again, here I am with the children that God gave me. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these things, so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, do you believe that? And free those who were held in slavery all of their lives by the fear of death. For it's clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered... When he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Do you believe that's true? Amen. He may be seated. We're reading a passage of scripture here. And if you were listening to that, I mean, we're reading that and it's uh, very melodic. But it is also super complicated. We end up in a, a section of scripture here where the author of Hebrews is beginning to push forward into his thesis, this proof that Jesus Christ is God and that he has set us free. But he begins to say some things uh, that all have little rabbit trails. As you are reading these, you should be shooting off in all these different directions. Say, well, wait, how is that true? How is that true? How is that true? He's hoping to spark in your mind a conversation. We only have time this morning for three because that's how many a sermon should have. <laughs> three conundrums. Three questions you should have as you are coming to this text. All right? So we'll tackle them. The first is this. Uh, the author, I want you to notice in verse six, it says, but someone somewhere has testified. By the way, that's a super intriguing way 
of highlighting that this is not a quote of the Hebrew scripture. It's a, it's a quote of the Septuagint, which is a group of 70 Jewish scholars who had written the Hebrew scriptures into Greek so everybody could read them. So when he says someone somewhere has testified, he's quoting the Septuagint, but it's not the Hebrew scriptures. So he's letting you off the hook. If you're saying, well, that's in Greek, I am reading it in the original language. He says, hey, just read this testimony that even your own scholars agree is true. And then he quotes Psalm 8. Here's the first question that we run into as people who are reading the scripture with our eyes open. The question is this, is the author's quote of Psalm 8 talking about man or Jesus? What is man that you remembered him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. And he says, and in subjecting everything, we don't see everything in subjection under his feet, and he could still be talking about humankind there. But then the author of Hebrews says, but specifically, we do see him, Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels. The answer to the question is the author's quote talking about man or Jesus. The answer to that question is yes. He's talking about man and Jesus. So we should unpack it a little further. If he's talking about man, how will everything ever be subjected to us? Are you aware that if an angel were to come into this room right now, just one angel, you couldn't kill him? Do you, are you aware of that? But he could take you out. According to if we're doing a Bible comic book series, okay? It's not going to happen right now in real life. You wouldn't have the power over an angel. How is it that even the angelic realm will be subjected to believers? If man, how will everything be subjected to us? And if it's Jesus, how could he be for a little while lower than the angels? Uh, the book of Hebrews uh, actually employs something, I believe, all the way through it. Uh, it's a, a style of teaching that was common with Jewish scholars called midrash. And that's where they would take a story or a teaching and they would uh, add it over the, the top of what has been taught in the Old Testament to be able to add flavor or color to it, to draw out the point so that you would consider it more deeply. Their goal was not to just hand feed you the answers. The goal was to put you on a path where you would begin to think the right thoughts and arrive at the conclusion yourself. It's actually a great teaching technique. You don't just hand the kid the answer every single time. If you help them get to the place where they're supposed to find the answers, they'll land there, find that answer, and then it's theirs. They will remember it because they've been on the trail and they remember what it is that they're supposed to conclude. And this is the style of teaching that we find ourselves here. What he says is twofold. Through the incarnation, that is where God becomes man, through the incarnation, God actually inhabits our form. God becomes a man. This is how man will rule the universe. Jesus is God. Now, as soon as I use a word like incarnation, there's a bunch of words in this Hebrew uh, passage or in this passage in Hebrews that are hard for us to wrap our minds around. In my mind, as I'm trying to describe, okay, how are we going to walk through the incarnation and propitiation and atonement and all of these different terms? And instantly, I have a picture of myself at, at the edge of a cage trying to explain Microsoft to a hamster. 
At some point, our brains are not wired to be able to understand the information we're taking in. The author of Hebrews knows this. He leaves little trails to say, ponder this, ponder this, ponder this. But if your view of God is not enlarged, you're not reading the book. Instead of making God man-sized, he takes all of our thoughts about God and explodes our brain to where we're wrapping our minds around things, little pieces at a time, and it should overwhelm us with these truths. Through the incarnation, God became man. But also through Jesus, an actual man rules the universe because he is also actually God. Now, we're just walking through this as the book of Hebrews unpacks it. He eventually shows that we are made family, but the first thing he would have you understand is that God became a man, and through that, he rules the universe. Do you believe that? He's talking about both you and I in this scenario, and the only way that we can ever rule or reign is if we're identified in Christ. But there's a second conundrum in here that we need to wrap our minds around. It says here, for in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that was unsubjected in verse nine, but we do see Jesus made for a little while uh, lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Uh, it also says in uh, verse 12, I'll proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters and I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Uh, just write down next to that Psalm 22. The conundrum that we have, the second one that we're facing is this. Why is the fact that Jesus saves us as a man worthy of crowning and glory and honor? Why is it worthy of singing? He quotes, remember uh, each time that you see that indented section or it's in bold in your Bible, he begins to quote scriptures. I want you to notice something, if you can. Um, turn to Psalm 22, and uh, you will notice that this is a famous psalm. Uh, it was used, Christ uh, referred to it multiple times in his earthly ministry. He shouts out the very first line of this from the cross. I believe uh, you're talking to, um, at this moment, a group of people who did not yet have chapter and verse written out on there. They would not have had Psalm 22 uh, to shout out. They just, in order to tell you where to turn in the scroll, they would shout out the first line of the psalm. So when Jesus is shouting, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Every single person that's listening to him that had grown up in synagogue school would have remembered this psalm. And it perfectly describes his death and burial. It perfectly describes what he is facing. Everything that is happening to him is revealed right here in this psalm. I'll just read a couple pieces of it. Verse six, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, look at that word, and despised by people. How many people? Verse seven, everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads. He relies on the Lord, let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. By the way, the exact things that are shouted at the foot of the cross to Jesus. Hey, if you're so great, if God's really happy with you, why doesn't he save you from the cross? But I want you to notice something. Verse seven, everyone who sees me mocks me. 
jump down now to verse 22. Um, well, uh, verse 21, save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. In many of your Bibles, it'll actually put a little space there because he makes an exclamation, and you heard me, you answered me. So verse 22, I will proclaim your name to who? My brothers and my sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. Well, where did those brothers and sisters come from? I thought everybody was sneering. I thought everybody was hating. I thought everybody was irritated with. I thought everyone was cheering his death. Everyone was. Until Christ saves them and makes them family and built right into this psalm is this shocking truth. The ones who were sneering and hating, you and I, in our own flesh, we run from God. And part of the storyline is he takes those who were sneering and hating and makes them brothers and sisters. And he says, come on, we're going to go sing together. This is a great turn of events. Through Jesus, the offenders become part of the solution. We become part of the solution. Scott McKnight in a book called A Community Called Atonement. He gathers some stories, and in there, um, he tells the story of Don Husnick, uh, who he describes in the book as having some hard times. She was an alcoholic. She had destroyed relationships in her family. Uh, she had created harm uh, with all of her close friends. And at the end of this, she is depressed and overwhelmed and thought that her life was over. Well, she ends up um, getting right with Christ. She ends up in community with other believers who say, you are no longer what that was. You are now in Christ. You're his child. You're part of his family. Your legacy is different. After getting cleaned up and getting her story together, she actually uh, began um, to work part-time in an ER as a nurse in Chicago. And she says there was this one time, and she says, I won't use the patient's name, but a guy, and the first letter of his name is N. N comes in, and he had been found on the street, and he was in shock. And because he did not have shoes, he had wrapped uh, plastic bags around his feet and had duct taped them to his legs. And it was evident that he was going into shock, but the problem was found underneath those bags. There was infection and mold and disgust that were on his feet. And the people that were looking at this disheveled man brought in off the street who was speaking nonsense, gibberish to them, was not lucid. The, the, the people were dealing with all kinds of problems on a regular basis. And as they looked at him and they smelled him and they saw as they laid him onto the table that he just kind of flopped into place. He felt rejected. They in their hearts all around the ER were saying, ah, oh, another and she says, and there was something in me that was drawn to him. They'd strapped him to this cart. They'd restrained him. And I'll read to you in her own words. She says, no one in the ER that day really looked at him. And no one wanted to touch him. They wanted to ignore him and his broken life. But as much as I tried, I could not. I was drawn to him. The smirking security guards helped me walk him to the shower. As we entered the shower room, I set out the shampoo and soaps and towels like it was a five-star hotel. I felt in my heart that for at least 10 minutes, this forgotten man 
would be treated as a king. I thought for those 10 minutes he would see the love of Jesus. So I sat down, the foot sponge, and I decided that I would do the Betadine foot scrub myself when his shower was finished. I called the stock room for two large basins and a chair, and when N finished the shower, I pulled back the curtain, I walked him to the throne of warm blankets that I'd made, two basins set on the floor, and as I knelt at his feet, my heart broke, even as my stomach turned. I gently picked up his swollen, rotten feet. Most of his nails were black. They were curled over the tops of his toes. The skin was rough and broken and oozing pus. Tears streamed down my face while my gloved hands tenderly sponged the the soap over his wounded feet. The room was quiet as the once mocking security guard started helping by handing me towels. I patted the last foot dry. He looked into mine. And for a moment, he was alert. He was aware. And weeping quietly, he said, thank you. And in that moment, I was the one seeing Jesus. He was there all along, right where he said he would be. Matthew 25, 35 through 40, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food and thirsty and gave you something to drink? When was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? When was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them truly, I tell you, as you did it to one of the least of one of these who are members of my family. You did it to me. See, one of the miracles that happens through the incarnation is Jesus doesn't just come and save us, but he makes us part of the solution in other people's lives. Amen? If I were to ask for a raise of hands, and I'm not going to. The real question in the room is how many of you came to Christ because of a pastor or a leader? Or how many of you came to Christ because of the love of a friend or a parent or a family member? Somebody who, because of their love for you, shared the gospel and was unsettled until you were settled in Jesus. We get to be a part of the solution and isn't it a joy to be a part of God's family in that way. It's not just that through Jesus, the offenders become part of the solution, but also through Jesus, salvation is in reach. I have an illustration, pardon me, turning away from the audience here. You're not supposed to ever do that. Here I have a picture of you. Might be able to get that up on the screen. Looks fairly clear. Two realities happen the moment that we are born. Uh, We are alive and sin is present. Are you aware of that? Christ comes into our reality. Now, this is the beauty of this illustration. I can't uh, show you all of the glory of this because actually, if you were to look at this under a black light, these two would be radiating. Even if it looks like there's purity in this, there's actually... Already a hunger for sin, an activation of sin. You and I are born in sin. And what happens as soon as sin gets added to us, we begin to have this taint 
that you can see. That taint stays with us. Uh, There's actually nothing that we can do to get rid of it. You can add more and more and more to this and dilute it more and more, but that sin is always going to be present inside you. It's always going to be there. What Jesus does is he comes and he becomes present. He's right here. The solution is in our midst. And he isn't just content to come over here and be pure on his own. But we have an opportunity. If Christ is in you, there is something that happens. All of a sudden, there is a complete removal of sin. It completely disappears. Christ in you removes all of the sin. Why is that important? I want you to notice something. Because sitting right here on this table next to sin, we got Christ in us. All right? Do you notice this? Sin still can't have an effect on us. I just poured more of that in there. Christ in us, sin has no impact on the believer. And you and I are sitting right here in the midst of a generation. Now, I want you to notice a little verse. Remember, I told you, as you're reading through this on your own, look these passages up. I'm just going to take you to one. There's four of them in this passage. You ought to look them up. Isaiah chapter 8. This is going to blow your mind. I'm serious. You've got to turn there. I want to hear your Bibles. Or you can uh, turn them on. I want to see the glow on your face. (laughs) Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 through the end. Listen to what this says. And I just want you really quickly, no, I'm not going to preface it with anything else. Just read this and see if it feels relevant today. This is written 2,700 years ago, okay? This passage, 2,700 years ago. Verse 12. Do not call everything a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear or be terrified. And don't you be making eye contact with me. This is in the Bible, okay? (laughs) Starts with conspiracy theories. Well, that's irrelevant. We don't have any of that today. Verse 13. So you are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. The Lord of hosts. Lord Sabaoth. This is his war name. Only God as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. He will be a sanctuary. For the two houses of Israel, it would be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over these. They will fall and be broken. They'll be snared and captured. Bind up the testimony, seal up the instruction among my disciples. And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will wait for him. So here he is. He tells them that the answer is right there in their midst and the disciples have it. Here's your verse quoted in Hebrews. Here I am with the children the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of armies who dwells on Mount Zion. And the spiritists who chirp and mutter... (laughs) That's worth underlining just because it's a funny phrase. (laughs) Shouldn't a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they don't speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. If you don't speak God's word, you have no answer for this generation. Are you aware of that? So now listen to how it ends. The people who don't listen to the word will wander through the land dejected and hungry. They're famished. They'll become enraged. They will look upward and curse their king and God. They will look toward the earth, and this is what they will see. And and by the way, when it says they will see this, this is all they're going to be talking about. 
They will see only distress and darkness and gloom of affliction. They will be driven into thick darkness. Two ends of the spectrum. We either get captivated in conspiracy theories and overwhelmed by our own opinions rather than worshiping the living God, or we don't listen to his word and we end up in thick darkness and gloom and this severe concern. We're wandering around bothered. You know what's the craziest thing about this? This is actually written in Hebrew. So this passage starts on the right and ends on the left when you're reading it, okay? Starts with conspiracy theories, ends with doom and gloom. Do you want to know what's right in the middle of it? Jesus. And this is what he says. The whole time, the whole time, I'm right in your midst with the answer. The whole time, the answer for your sin, the answer for your concerns, the rock of yours can take care of your family. He has you secure, is right in your midst. He says, bind this up with my disciples. And it's quoted in Hebrews. He said, this same God has not changed. Amen? He hasn't changed. He's an answer to all your conspiracy theory wor- wor- worries and your, it's hard to say. <laughs> all the conspiracy theories solved. God's in control. You want to know what? Nothing got by him. He hasn't missed it. All the doom and gloom, you want to know what? It doesn't end the way they say it ends. It ends when he says it ends, and it ends in righteousness. Just be with him. The answer is bound up, and it's right there with Christ. That's a powerful thing. Just for Isaiah 8 alone, you should hang on to this sermon. This is a powerful passage. But there's a third conundrum that we wrap up with. How is it, at the very end, that Jesus... Who is God? Verse 10. Should be called the pioneer of our salvation being made perfect through salvation. How is it that Jesus is made perfect through suffering? This is an intriguing thing. Isn't Jesus God? He's already perfect. Right? But you want to know what God did at the very beginning? When sin enters into the world, he makes a promise. On your own, look up Genesis 3.15. As he's dealing with the snake, he reminds him that there is one that is coming. The snake would be able to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush the snake's head. God made a promise. Do you want to know how Jesus is complete through suffering? He keeps his word. If God didn't keep his word, he would be incomplete. He would not be perfect. But the way that he is made perfect through suffering, it's not because there was any lack that was found in him. He just keeps his word through Jesus. Through Jesus, God keeps his word and he saves the world. There's another passage here and uh, we're out of time this morning, but I would encourage you to look it up. It's Isaiah chapter 12. Um, It is quite literally the outline that Jesus uses for the woman at the well. It's a short little chapter, and he starts with the fact that we're overwhelmed by our sins and that if you would follow the Lord, a wellspring will well up from within you, eternal life. The only one who has the keys to eternal life is the living God. And Christ just walks his way through that Isaiah 12 passage and offers this woman eternal life if she would only put her trust in him. And she runs away, just like the end of the passage proclaims we should. And she goes and tells everybody, I've seen the Savior. Jesus 
is perfect because God through him keeps his word. Now, I just want you to observe in here and uh, verses 14 through the end, he makes a lot of statements. Um, he's going to unpack those through the rest of the book. So we're not going to get ahead of the author of Hebrews, but there are two things that are important. It says in here that uh, Jesus took on flesh so that we could become family. When we go back to that Psalms 8 passage, um, it, this is not a moment where God gets reduced to man. But in fact, what it does is God coming down elevates man up. It doesn't reduce him to take on this flesh. It elevates us. By being in Christ, our position has changed. We become something other. We are a new creation, Scripture says. The old is gone, the new has come. God's changed something in you. But the second thing I would have you observe is that Jesus died in our place to make full payment. Uh, we've been using the CSB, and uh, in verse 17 there it says, uh, so that he might become a faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. And that word in most of your Bibles, you'll see down below someplace, uh, they will put another way to translate that. The actual word there is propitiation, and the difference is significant and important. Atonement means to cover over. Propitiation means to pay in full. What he's literally saying here is that Jesus, when he came and made his sacrifice, unlike a regular high priest who just was able to cover over sin, Jesus actually makes a full payment for our sins. And not only that, he becomes our high priest. He doesn't just pay for your sins. Then he puts on a different set of clothes. He goes down to the bank where you were in debt to the point that you were never going to be able to pay. He pays all of the debt. He has all of the cash. He gives you his bank account. And he says, you want to know it? You're probably overwhelmed by the paperwork. Let me go take care of that for you as well. He pays for the sin. He goes to the bank. He takes care of the paperwork. He does all of this while you rest in him. He died in our place. Slate Magazine a short while ago um, did an article that was actually shocking to me. Uh, it was uh, in 2012 they did the article, but it's um, about a couple of events that had happened just a few years er earlier in 2009. In uh, China, a wealthy 20-year-old uh, was drag racing, doing about 80 miles an hour, and it hit somebody and killed them. And what they were highlighting was that the ultra elite in that country, um, it's not the one percenters, it's one-tenth of one percenters hold almost all of the wealth in China. And if they do something wrong, they can literally purchase their way out of it. He kills somebody. It made uh, outside news somehow. Somebody saw the process that they went through. First, they tried to explain it away. Maybe he wasn't really dead, but the guy had died when he was hit by a car going 80 miles an hour. And then they found out that actually uh, another man, this man who was actually allowed to purchase another man, change his name, have him stand trial in his place, and take his punishment while he went free. And he said, I'll pay your family. Uh, they will no longer be in, in poverty if you just take my place. And he purchased. It was not justice that was served. And they began to highlight in Slate Magazine how this is happening over and over and over again. 
everything in us rankles at that, doesn't it? The irritation that somebody would go and do something wrong, something sinful, and another person, just because they are wealthy, can, can buy their way out of the penalty. Where that irritates us, the scripture actually gives us a true solution. The actual opposite is what is happening in this passage. Here it is actually, it's not just the one-tenth of the one percent. He is the only one in the universe, God. And all of us that are wicked and deserve sin and are actually underneath the press of judgment have no ability to purchase our way out of it. And he comes and takes our place. He buys his way into our situation from elite status down to our station so that he could serve our penalty. It is the exact, it's not even justice itself. It is mercy. It is grace. And it's undeserved. Amen? In this passage, through some complicated statements, the author of Hebrews says, I'm hoping to spark a conversation. Do you see how Jesus is so radically different from you and I? Do you see what he does on our behalf? And are you attracted to him? He should be drawing your attention. Now it's possible that you're here today and you actually don't know Christ. You know that you've got sin in your life, uh, but you've been trying to add and add and add, trying to dilute the things that you have done and not make them as serious. Here's the thing that I would have you. As we get ready to go into this study of the book of Hebrews, I want you to go in knowing Christ. If you are here today and you're just investigating Christ, but you've never given your life to him, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. At the end of this service, after AJ gets done leading us, I'm going to ask you to just come forward and we can pray so that you can know for sure that you are forgiven so that Christ in you would set you free. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, you've asked us to consider these things and in your word, this is a passage of scripture that could just leave us boggled. We could be overwhelmed as we read it, but we ask instead that we would be set free, that you would open our eyes to the beauty of who Christ is, to the the fact that he is the only answer. He's the only one who can take care of our sin problem. Father, I pray that uh, instead of just grabbing onto that like we did in Sunday school, hearing it and moving on, that we would actually this week begin to meditate on that. What does it mean that Christ would take our place? What does it mean that God would put on flesh? What does it mean that he would do this to set me free? Father, we thank you for that, and I pray that you would inspire us a heart of faith. In Christ's name, amen.